Hi everyone, I'm Adam Molnar. I'm a co-founder of Neurable and I beat the often path by falling into this crazy world of neurotechnology, whereas previously I thought I'd be working in policy and behavior, but here I am, working on systems to control computers and better understand yourself. Adam Molnar is the co-founder and head of partnerships at Neurable, the beautiful office in historic downtown Boston where we filmed this episode live. Nurable was gracious enough to lend me one of their conference rooms to meet inspiring local founders and entrepreneurs, and I got a first-hand look at their upcoming tech, and boy, it is incredible. Nurable makes brain control interfaces, or BCIs, and their tech is so discreet and non-invasive that it can literally fit into a pair of normal headphones. That's right, just by wearing a pair of normal headphones, information from your brain can be captured, allowing you to do truly futuristic things like control Spotify using only your mind, or better understand your focus and natural cycles to optimize your productivity in ways that we never ever dreamed of. With their groundbreaking tech, it's possible that in a few years, every pair of headphones that you buy will have Neurable baked in ushering in a new era of both computing and self-awareness. So here's Adam Molnar, I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path, live in Boston. Well, we're here at the Nurable office, so thank you for being so generous with oh, your it's space our pleasure. time. And it's a, it's a very great energy and vibe today with Waffle Wednesday. So we had some delicious <laughs> waffles made by the you founder. Know, the sugar crash. Yeah, exactly. It's statistically, the brainwave monitoring will show <laughs> that I need to pick me up. Uh, I need another cup of coffee. We do have an algorithm for that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. But when people think of brain tech, neurotech, I mean, some people are very excited by it. Obviously, others are scared or apprehensive um, or maybe just don't fully understand what we're dealing with. I think I know a little bit more than the average person now sure. from my chats with Ramses and from learning more about what you've done. And and I think with all technology things, it's easy to see a positive side and it's easy to see a negative side. And just about for everything we can think of, there's both, really. Yeah. It's almost 50-50. For every benefit, there's an equal and opposite uh, potential drawback. So this is a very interesting technological space. So maybe before we get into some of the ethics or the neuroethics, as it may be called, Tell me about how you came from policy. Like you said, you ended up here. So what was the arc for you to get here? Yeah, so uh, when I was in school, I was, I was studying sustainability with an emphasis on behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, had an opportunity to work on the Hill, turned that down to start my first company. First company was going strong, year and a half, had to shut it down for a really unfortunate reason. Just my co-founder uh, walked in and I wasn't able to re- resuscitate it in time. But that door closing really led to another door opening. And really, it led to this crazy neuroscientist asking me if I wanted to control technology with my mind. Literally, he had a demo where he was controlling a Lego Mindstorm car upright, left down, using non-invasive neural activity. And uh, from that first demo, I saw how this was going to be a part of the future. And even though I don't actually come from neuroscience, I, although I like to think that I, I, I know a little bit something about the brain right now, uh, I, I knew it was an opportunity that I had to get involved with. Wow. And what, where did we come from? Because this is a field, it hasn't existed for so long, but when people think of brain control interfaces, if they know anything, they think of those giant nets or... Yeah you know, complicated pieces of machinery that are difficult. They don't think of something like this, a pair of <laughs> normal headphones. That yeah, no, have. I mean, like, the, well, well, we'll get into the headphones, but the, the standards that we use for EEG have existed for decades, and we still use them. There's the 1020 standard array. Uh, 
this is marking a, a somewhat of a substantial shift away from what has been known in laboratories to bring that out into the wild. And there's a lot of inspiration from wearable devices where heart rate monitoring has existed in hospitals for many, many decades. And it's just now that it's commonplace to wear an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. Um, but that's also a device that tracks your heart rate. So to the same extent that we're putting technology in an invisible way into existing form factors, that's what we're doing with our, our next product and, and future products. Mm -hmm. So what's the vision? What's the utopian vision of what's best case with <laughs> some of this tech? I don't know about utopian vision, <laughs> All right. but uh, there are a lot of best cases and there are a lot of good cases. And, and you led with uh, technology are basically tools and tools can be wielded for good or bad. Uh, and it's somewhat up to society to determine safeguards, whether that's policy or culture, to really get that going. So in regards to good use cases and good outcomes, what we're providing people really for the first time is an unfettered access to yourself from an organ that has historically have no pain receptors. It's not like a heart that you can feel when it, when it gets, uh, when you get anxious or a, a muscle that gets sore after a workout. There is an equivalent of that for the mind. So Brain OS, which is our, our platform, that first version is going to give a level of insight on a consistent basis that's validated and just works in a form factor that you don't feel like you're part of a science experiment, really for the first time. And, and that's really exciting. And earlier this morning, we had a, a call uh, with a Waffle Wednesday, uh, and they were sort of showing some of the potential applications, again, for people who have had difficulties, people with spinal cord injury, uh, people who have cerebral palsy or various uh, things that prevent them from being able to do a lot of the things that many other people take for granted. So creating an interface with the brain directly has a, a number of incredible advantages across a wide number of fields, in addition to just the sheer convenience of being able to control something with your mind and say, Spotify, play the next song or something silly, right? Yeah, I mean, what you're touching on is the root of uh, my, my co-founder's starting thesis, the, the starting vision that really got all of this into motion, which is that, for better or worse, there are people who just get limited by life, uh, whether that's a physical limitation or a cognitive limitation. Um, we don't like to think of them as limitations. These are just things that we can build around, that we can solve, that we can equalize. And I, I think that is a, is a very powerful responsibility. Whether you have cerebral palsy and your conventional communication methods are not what you are able to do, that doesn't really matter because you do have a functioning brain. You are healthy. You are a, a human. So how do we make it so that all of those people, all of ourselves, how do we participate on this equal playing field? And, and that's the vision of this quote-unquote world without limitations. Mm. Do you see it as being uh, an input device? Like, or what do you think the limitations of it as an input device are? Can I, in the future, type without using my hands? Can I? How many activities could theoretically be replaced by something like this? That, that question really depends on what sensor you're talking about. Because there are existing limitations, but those limitations also change. And that also changes when you look at multimodal communication. In other words, you're not just looking at EEG, but you're also looking at EMG, electromyography, so electrical activity of the muscles. Or what's going on in your environment. All, all of these are different context clues that you can use to improve the capability of something. But to answer your question specifically, Right now, we have limited interactions that you can practically use. That's pause, play, fast forward. But 
there are ways and things that we've already done and, and will be rolling out in, in the near future to actually communicate hands-free. And that will start with a limited library of words, but then over time we'll get more and more complex. That's something that I'm personally looking forward to a lot from using a computer 14 hours a day myself for the last <laughs> forever, uh, working as a digital nomad for over a decade. I have developed epicondylitis, a tendonitis, basically tennis elbow, mm. but I don't play tennis. It's from <laughs> typing and using computer all the time. Typing so, <laughs> of course, it's always tempting to think not only it would be great to not have to type anymore at some point in the future, but it would also be amazing to see how fast we can think if something like word speed or other limitations aren't a factor because even you know if, if the best typer can type say 120 words per minute how much more could you do if you were able to think 500 words per minute or something like that yeah but at, at that stage I, I do want to build up like practical limitations okay. of the technology especially non-invasive when we're talking yeah. about invasive then you, we could talk about like real high bandwidth communication but for where we are right now in the next year or two Several years, um, it I, I I still would look at like voice communication as a higher resolution communication flow than typing, mm-hmm. uh, and and that that's what's key with these new types of interfaces. You have to build to the power of the interface, which is somewhat challenging because science fiction and what other other cultural elements that exist in our zeitgeist. Uh, we think of Magneto when we think of neurotechnology. We think about, uh, I don't know, the force. But that's not necessarily representative of what is actually possible, mm. even though it's cool. Yeah, but it's almost equally incomprehensible to think that I can think next song and the next song will play. So it's also hard to know as a, as a layperson myself. I mean, that is itself very impressive. How is that possible? Or I can think about lifting my hand <laughs> to pick up that cup and send some sort of signal without actually picking up the cup. That is the magic of the when the the feeling of the effect. But when you, it, it, I would write it almost akin to a magic trick. That the magic trick is so special when you feel and experience it, and then when you learn about it, it's not so much that it isn't as magical, but it makes sense, and that somewhat goes away. So it's like when you figure out how to do these fundamentally difficult things then you you get a different kind of appreciation for it and, and that's the route that we're taking it's not like if the effect that you feel is i want to skip the song and it's able to skip the song it's not necessarily because we're reading your mind it but that is the power that we're giving you but it is foreshadowing, because the part that always confused me, and I'm sure it's quite straightforward, is just how can I send the signal for doing something completely without actually doing it? Yeah. Well, see, your body is funny in the sense that it somewhat is a filter. That, like, for example, people will refer to your finger movements or the electrical activity in the muscles in your hand as an extension of your brain, because ultimately they're is an electrical signal that does go from your brain into the muscles into your hand to then manipulate a, a keyboard click or or whatever. Um, so how we think about what is a neural signals is su- subject to interpretation. Uh, we do these things biologically that filter that signal out for a more specific intent, like if I'm typing between yes or no to answer a question and I type yes, that's not you necessarily reading my mind. That's my neural signal translating into an input that answers your question. Mm-hmm. 
And then on the algorithm side, we we do also do something similar where we have different labels. We filter in a specific way to look for insights or data that is inferential of a, a target answer. And that's that's how we build and train these things to then build up capabilities to power features that then give uh, an end person a benefits. It's these series of translations. Mm. And um, within a year or two, without getting into anything that you can't share, mm -hmm. what do you think the upper limit of that might be in the short? Um, I'll answer that question, but I, I think it's almost distracting to think about the upper limit. Okay. Where the groundbreaking thing is setting a lower limit to setting that zero to one transition of what's actually now possible. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll start with that and then we can, we can uh, feature cast of what, what's okay. possible, the, the juicy deets. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but like really for the first time ever, having a, an objective estimation of attention that you can then use for a bunch of things, whether it's distraction. Think of, I, I was listening to a podcast today on the train from New York to Boston and as one does while listening to a podcast, I started mind wandering. I started thinking about a new solution to a problem. And then I'm like, shoot, I, I missed, I, I missed the last five I, minutes. And mm. one of the things that we're prototyping in the office very soon is a feature to essentially bookmark parts of a podcast of where were you really dialed in versus the parts where you might have drifted off. So that either it will auto flip back to you, or it will slow down the the language, the the speed of the the voice, so that you have a, a audio cue to get back to it, or a report of what were the parts that were the the most tasty for you, and what were the parts that maybe you mm -hmm. you weren't as, as, you were a little bit distracted. Mm -hmm. These are practical applications of what's now possible because we have this fairly reliable estimation of attention. Yeah. And that's just step one. We also have things around fatigue. We have early promise for stress and biomarkers of neurocognitive diseases. Um, so, yeah. So that that that's the the bottom limit. The upper limit goes. We're turning the taps on neural data in an intentional ethical way that, for the first time, really allows us to do crazy machine learning, crazy AI. Because um, that hasn't really existed outside of academic data sets, but then those aren't really representative of natural environments. Um, and anyways, it, that, that's not even at the scale of what we'll be collecting even just next year when we'll have tens of thousands of units out in the wild. Um, so we'll be able to train up libraries to detect various different facial expressions. We'll be able to go beyond just uh, a simple estimation of attention. We'll be able to go from we have an algorithm right now that I can I can speak publicly about called Take a Break, where it identifies cognitive decline and then just gives you a, a cue that says you would benefit better from a break now than if you were to wait X however minutes. And this is a pilot that we ran with the Mayo Clinic and, and something that we're continuously proving out and is, is very exciting. But that's just level one, when you should take a break. The next is... When you take the break, how recuperative was was it to you? How much did it restore? Like, what was the equivalent of battery charge that you got from it? And that's level two. Level three is then starting to curate uh, tailored intervention for specifically to you. Now, you at your current disposition would most benefit from a five minute walk 
seven meditation or maybe half a cup of coffee. And these are real things that you can start to get to when you start measuring things and getting these data points at scale. So that being able to get labeled data around things that have been a little bit more squishy in neuroscience, like the the valence scale, which is a little bit more around emotional affect. So like happy or sad, that part is not super well understood and I, I think is hard to see in the data. But what happens when you start to have that many, many times over, I think that you could get closer to that or you could at least get proxies of that. And then think like a, a video game that tailors the narrative to your current situation. Imagine a large language model that's now taking into account emotional qualities. Like it's a level, it's a, it's a new dimension of understanding that's now available to a computer that hasn't existed before. And, and with that, so the lower level is it tells you that you weren't paying attention when uh, your advisor repeatedly told you that you weren't allowed to take these classified documents out of the room. It looks like you weren't paying attention to that whole exchange. So maybe you should circle back and do that. That's the lower bound. Uh, or a book or a podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Savage. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's clearly sometimes you're not mentally there. <laughs> sometimes you're not mentally listening to what's being presented to you very clearly. Um, but at an upper limit, you can really, if you are the type, really optimize mm-hmm. your life. You can optimize your productivity, perhaps, and you can start figuring out how you work and start making better, more informed decisions about structuring your day, which could have pretty far-reaching implications for the way that all of our days are structured, I imagine, if that data becomes more readily known. Absolutely, and and there is a risk associated with that. We, we don't want people to get obsessed with the optimization. What we're trying to communicate and have people benefit from is access to a new data source where you are able to have a better understanding you can color in this second guess that you might have had. You, you, you just have a, 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 another a, a ref, reference point to better understand yourself, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, totally, it, it could be used for optimization, it could be used for productivity improvement, it could be used for uh, reducing strain on, on your, your cognitive profile, could be used to just explore parts of yourself that you, you didn't know about. Um, it, it, that's that's the thing, right? Where it and it's a double-edged sword when we're opening up this new thread of understanding that we haven't had before. And you said that you're one of the first or the first company in the space that has publicly said you won't sell that data because obviously we live in a time where data privacy is such a huge. Thing And I think most of us tend to assume that if we put any device in our home, if I put a Google Nest, if I put an Amazon Alexa, if I put anything in my home, it's just going to harvest all of the data that it can and sell it to whoever for whatever purpose. Um, Can you shed some light on your thoughts on that? Oh, I've got a lot of thoughts on that. (laughs) Okay, good. I I mean, part of it is that we're playing catch-up. We built the internet knowing that it was the wild, wild west. Right. And we are still catching. I, I use this anecdote in some of the talks I give around the subject that uh, it, a, a rough estimation, but between the the first commercial car and the first legislation, federal legislation in the United States for seatbelts, how many people died? Over a million and a half people died 
between the first commercial car, which was arguably in the 1890s, to the 1950s when there was the first federal, and, and that didn't require it. That was just like the first step towards it. And uh, that's just an illustrative example of even though we know that things can be bad for us, we're really bad about making change. So I digress a little bit, but I, I well, use it's important, that. You know, when you're going to drive home from the bar, Excellent. make sure you put your seat. Oh, wait. We didn't enact <laughs> any laws in many states until the 80s. <laughs> you could just drink and drive, right? All of these things. Yeah, but yeah, so uh, several years ago, uh, this reporter got in touch with me from Routers and was just trying to get a sense of where neurotechnology stands in the, in the field of ethics. And I told him, like, our, our company won't sell your data. Like, that's not our strategy. We may use your data from a deauthenticated source to improve algorithms, create new capabilities, return new value to you. But we're not going to sell who you are to someone so that they can engineer a better advertisement or an insurance company so that they can jack up your rate, which are which is what is happening. Mm. Um, what else? Uh, our company hasn't always had the success that we had. We we did have some challenges as most startups do, and at one point we pivoted. Uh, we went from immersive hands-free computing to understanding where we could build a company. A business because we are a venture backed business after all. And in doing so, we were doing customer discovery, which is a standard procedure that most startups engage with, at least most good ones. <laughs> and uh, we, in the process, got an offer for a six figure check size to do work for neuromarketing. How do we use cognitive insights, whether they're established or not, to improve the quality of an advertisement? And we turned that down. We, we Really, like between Ramsey's and I and, and the team, who are all actually quite a- active in the neuroethics space, um, that's not what we wanted to build. When you're doing a startup, you're investing your soul, your time, your capital, other people's trust, and that just what that wasn't what we wanted to do. Mm. So from that approach, we we actually looked to wearables, and I think Apple does do a fairly good job of this, where they set a precedent that your data is your data. And that's that's the first basic tenet of good data privacy, and that's generally how I carry myself around neuroethics, where you are the owner of your data, and when we launch our product, you'll have the ability to delete your data, to delete your account. Um, we are transparent with what we do with it. We ask for you to opt in. We explain what we're going to do with it, even though neural data may not be that uh, high resolution in terms of what can tell about someone. That doesn't matter. The fact that people care about it is is precedent enough or concern enough that we should care about it. Um, and I think that that's somewhat something that the rest of consumer technology needs to improve. Actually, just all technology. Like people don't really understand what they're giving away when they sign those terms and conditions. There are features that. If you don't give away your data, you just can't use it. So it's like, am I going to use the internet or am I going to protect my information? I, I, like, I wonder how different our reality would be if data were treated as currency. Could you imagine how much more protection there would be? Like, how much uh, data gets stolen every day and we just do nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that data is currency. It is currency, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's super important. We're 
way behind catching up. And there is good work being done, but it, it is leagues behind where we should be. So from a, from a marketing or advertising standpoint, obviously the Coca-Cola would like to know that for the 30 seconds of their latest commercial, you were fully engaged and that the dopamine was jacked up to the max. You have nothing but positive associations. So it's easy to understand how a marketer or an advertiser would want to make use of that data yeah. because it's like the holy grail of understanding what somebody feels and then you can A-B, and A-B test a thousand different versions. So this one had the most. But of course, extrapolating that a bit further, when you've got algorithms controlling our lives, like TikTok, mm-hmm. the ability, of course, to really, really make somebody addicted to a stream, a, a platform and say, like, okay, you're, we're not going to let you off the hook here. We're going to keep that dopamine perfectly dialed has pretty far-reaching implications as well, especially when you consider that a lot of the people who are most active on these types of platforms have no idea that these things are learning from them or yeah. that are you know feeding them stuff that is designed to hook them to the maximum possible degree. I was speaking at MIT with fellow esteemed individuals who talk about neuroethics, and one person was trying to make the case that neuroethics is unique because... It has long-standing implications that could manipulate our behavior. And I said, respectfully, I, I disagree that we are currently engaged with many activities that we don't fully understand how they manipulate our behavior. Social media being a, a great example. Shitty example, but a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, so I, I see this tool as, as potentially even being a, a boon in this. Uh, or like a, an, a remedy where you could at least be able to monitor it and then be able to build out interventions for it. And that's why my like my platform, when you give me a soapbox and you let me go, it's not about technology. It's about protections. It's about transparency. It's about, um, uh, what's it called? Um, Consent and more than consent. What is informed consent, right? As opposed to forced consent, which is also click, click okay or you can't use this product. Exactly. Um, how how do we build in the option to be forgotten? How do we prevent surveillance? People don't necessarily mind insights being revealed. At that same talk, uh, this this topic came up about concern about the ability to to identify some kind of cognitive disease onset early. Mm-hmm. So the, the moderator asked the audience, how many of you would want to know if you're predisposed to Alzheimer's? And some hands went up. And she asked the opposite, how many of you would be opposed? Some hands, hands went up. And I made the point that what just happened was supreme. You gave them the option. You, they understood what they were, under, what they were receiving, and that is how we should do it. That's how we should build these systems. We should build it with consent from the people that it, it involves. And then when it starts to go beyond the user, when it starts to become third-party sales or commoditization of data, that's when policy needs to come into play. I mean, policy needs to come into play at all levels. But that's when I think uh, we really do have an obligation to ensure that these systems are being used in, a, in an above-board manner. Yeah, and and all of these new devices, like, for example, I was just blown away. I don't know if you you must have seen the new Apple VR headset. I watched the live keynote. I always watch that. 
And I was just, my jaw was on the floor the entire time. I thought the future is here. The future that so many people have thought is coming is now here. This yeah. is one of the first <laughs> truly futuristic things that is just, I mean, the iPhone maybe being the last major shift. And one of the things that struck me is this thing has something like 12 cameras built in. It has cameras facing you. It has cameras facing out in the world. Um, <laughs> it's tracking your eye data, all of that stuff. So you think, oh, here are... 50 new ways to capture new data about me, different mm -hmm. things that, where am I looking? So I've got six tabs. Which tab am I focusing on? Which part of a website am I looking at? And marketers and people whose job it is to influence people, that is all supremely in interesting stuff. Just yep. like right now, if you visit a website, I can tell which buttons you clicked, which parts you scrolled to, and which ones you ignored, and I can make decisions on that. So now it's like I can tell which what you looked at or whether something blinky caught your attention and you focused over there. So the more of the data that we're, we're capturing, the more it becomes clear that we do need some kind of comprehensive guidelines about what we do with all of that data. Absolutely. And I think the thing to note, and you're already touching on this, is that the sensors are not going anywhere. They're only going to become more robust. The, the data has only become... Is, Excuse me, is only going to become even higher resolution. So that's why I put such a premium on how do we generally protect these things. And I, I think that that's what we really need to solve. And that gets into incentives. What, how are people being compensated for these things? It goes into policy. At what point do we need to prevent these things from being done in the first place? Um, how do we punish bad actors? Right now, Companies operate knowing that they're doing wrong and just accept the fine because it pays to. And that's an example of a wrong incentive. Uh, so it's very complicated. I, I won't even begin to claim that I have all the answers, but I, I do think it begins with doing what you can. So like from our part, whether or not, and I, I do anticipate that we will be, but for the sake of an argument, whether or not Neurable will be here in 10 years the decisions that we make, the culture that we set, and the precedent that we put with our products essentially facilitate other companies to follow that or force other companies to follow that because if they then do anything less, then they're, that, that's, that's no longer the norm. So I think we have this little obligation, which I think is a fairly major obligation, to do what's right, mm -hmm. and um, that, that's how we carry ourselves. Well, I very much appreciate that you are on that side because you. <laughs> you could easily not be. You could have chosen not to do that. You've chosen a more difficult path. We mentioned that before uh, deliberately, which I always am personally path not taken. most interested in. Right, I'm most interested in the people who who display another level of thinking about some of these things because a lot of people, and that's never been what my show has been about or any of this, but. I don't, I'm not impressed by people who want to make the most amount of money possible. It doesn't, yeah, I don't if I, care. If that were the case, I'd go into investment <laughs> banking. Or it's like, I want to make billions of dollars, but who cares how? <laughs> you know, I think how matters just as much as, as what um, to me. You know what? Say what you will about billionaires, but I would be willing to bet. Not a billion dollars because I don't have that. <laughs> but I'd be willing to bet a large sum of money that most billionaires did not start their careers or engage in their careers with the goal of becoming a billionaire. I think the especially like in tech, I think these people 
genuinely had a vision for a change in the world. And because our world is primarily a capitalistic one, it rewards innovation and disruption. And who knows where it goes after that and what views that might warp. But um, I think it, it comes back to incentives. And some initially, especially founders, they're driven by a, a personal ambition that they want for the world. Where it goes after that, I, I can't necessarily say. But Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a world of unintended consequences. It's a world where we're going full speed ahead at all times, yeah. changing things. But of course, we don't know. And and maybe you know we're not meant to know, depending on how philosophical or spiritual you want to be. <laughs> maybe it's not our place. Maybe entropy, for entropy's sake, is a force that is important in the universe. Maybe just messing with things yeah. is important. And maybe that's just a value. But it, it, <laughs> this is clearly what has happened. Because I don't believe when Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook, I mean, obviously, he wasn't seeing 400 steps in advance to, oh, this could be used uh, as a political tool. Oh, this could manipulate in an entire election when he thought, let's connect a bunch of people's friends together yeah. <laughs> on a platform. I don't think he realized that memes would be so powerful as a, a means for uh, manipulating people's thoughts, for example. And um, and these algorithms that choose to prioritize one thing or another, relatively small decisions, you say, like, I'm just going to show you things that you like versus yeah. things that you don't like seems harmless enough, right? But then soon you find, <laughs> then you get echo chambers. Oh, right. it turns out there's two different communities that never hear from each other and they believe opposite things because they only each hear what they like. Yeah. Whereas the other point of view would be something that they don't like, which they're less likely to engage with. So we live in an era of unintended consequences where it's very hard to predict what's going to happen or what the the 10 year on 20 year on 30 year on consequence of a decision we make today will be anyway i i think that's always the case uh it's always been the case like people many studies point to this show that we are illogical actors and are extremely influenced are very influenceable um it's just that the decisions that we make now, I think, have a little bit of a stronger rippling effect because one sets of zeros and ones then connects to another and then to another, and then that becomes capitalizable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's like the positive side of that is some things that other people aren't worried about. I, I do have a lot of faith in human ingenuity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a couple hundred years ago, the fact that we would run out of, an, of oil was <laughs> who cared, right? That didn't mean anything. And now we say, oh my God, if we run out of oil, we're screwed. Uh, but I do have faith that, you know, it's clear that the advent of the car, for example, then suddenly extreme demand for oil and gasoline, right? But yeah. if we invent something else that replaces, you know, whereas before the car, there might have been horse food was <laughs> more important. Uh, it's it's clear that those changes can dramatically change uh, everything relatively quickly if it's certain types of things. Like when something comes out, the whole market can change. Mm -hmm. Look at the iPhone. You know, Nokia was a leader. BlackBerry was a leader. Who cares about either of them now? So these sea changes happen very fast. Um when new technology, and I have faith generally that a lot of our problems can be solved by technology. It's just new <laughs> issues or ethical implications will arise as a result of doing that that we maybe can't predict. Yeah, and it, it is just this circle of problem solving, almost like a whack-a-mole. Uh, like the, There's always going to be a problem. And I think the best that we can do is figure out and create a situation where 
we are actively trying to make it better, trying to leave the place better than when we came. And I think if everyone approaches it with that, there generally will be a net positive change. But it, it does dip into philosophical questions of like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to coexist? Uh, what is our relationship with technology? How are we as a species? Like, I, like all of those things, things are changing. I think that's okay. Um, but yeah, the the next uh, ten years are exciting. This is definitely not a boring time. No, not at all. But I wonder if anyone would have said that this is a boring. Like, yeah, I, I reckon this is boring. <laughs> this is, oh my god, so predictable. <laughs> will uh, Will anybody be able to earn money in ten years? Will, you know, that's that. Will anybody have a job in 10 years? That's Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, right? Will we get to universal basic income or not? Um, who knows? Uh, so you accidentally found yourself here, but I assume that it was an excitement of technology on the positive side because that's what I love about it as well. I think the people who are in tech, they get excited. And I see that Apple thing. And of course, part of me is terrified, but part of me is just really excited. It's a new dimension. You can see the positive things. When I think of stuff like what Neurable is doing, Part of me is really, really excited. When I see a kid with cerebral palsy up on the screen controlling things mm -hmm. and his world has expanded dramatically, how could you not be excited by that? So I think a lot of us are motivated by that excitement first and foremost. Is mm -hmm. that what you feel? Is that your primary motivating factor? What could this all become? Yeah, I, just, I feel this obligation to... Before I get into that, like I think we all recognize that this is important technology, that the ability to understand ourselves is just continuously improving, continuously improving in resolution, that we're going from computing from a desktop to computing on a phone to now computing in our ear, and then in the not-so-distant future, this uh, bilateral computing where the devices are, are writing to us and we're writing to the devices. Um, all of that is interesting. And I, I also think that we are not aware generally of how 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 far things progress and how you know, for example, my friend got a, a drone from DJI, right? Mm -hmm. And he got the nice one that has three cameras. And Good he Yeah, <laughs> he got the fancy one, the expensive one. And he flew it up about a mile away from a the a stadium in his hometown. And he turned on the zoom lens mm -hmm. and you could read the text from inside the owner's box from the stadium. Great. And I thought who on earth knows that that's possible, that that dot that's, you know, a mile away can be looking at your face. Right. And that's consumer tech. So yeah. how far is the other tech? So I think at, at a policy level and an individual level, most people just have no clue of what's, really happening. And I think that's an advantage for marketers or technological people who are more educated. But I think a lot of people would be surprised by the level of tech that exists all around them and the sophistication of tech that exists all around them if they really knew more. And if people were to see the data repositories that exist about their internet usage, they would be, their minds would be spinning. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, just to answer your previous question, because like I was talking about these changes in platforms, and it's interesting the reason why I'm still doing what I am, even though I, I don't come from a neuroscience background, I don't have the personal connection of 
someone who lost the ability to walk and wanting to use my entire soul to rehabilitate that or to change that. What I do have is this recognition that this is important mm -hmm. and knowing that if I don't try to make this a better place for the future, who will? And if, if I'm not spending my time doing that, then why would someone else? <laughs> I, I was uh, meeting with some founders uh, the other day, and I was speaking with a guy who, who works in finance, and he goes, you ever th I was telling him that we, we'd been doing this for nearly 10 years, and he goes, is it easy? I'm like, no, it's really fucking hard. Excuse my language. That's okay. um, <laughs> no, it's really hard. And he's like, do you ever think about quitting? I'm like, yeah. Honestly, yeah. It's like, what what keeps it going? If it weren't hard, it wouldn't be worth doing. Like, if I weren't doing this, I'd be doing something else that was hard. I hope. <laughs> mm. So uh, that with the the hope that the work that I'm doing today benefits someone tomorrow, just you know, helps you get get you up in the morning. Plus, it's really cool. It, it is yeah. it is supremely cool, yeah. <laughs> and that's why I was drawn to the story. Like, let's not forget, it is very cool, and the implications, positive, are, are incredible. Uh, you have chosen to make your life harder, and I find that to be admirable in a world where most people's primary desire is, how can I make my <laughs> life easier? Um, not a lot of people are willing to or ready to just shoulder extra burden for the fun of it. Yeah. Uh, I think we'd all be better off if everybody did, but that's just not the case. So in those moments when it's really tough, what keeps you going and what, what do you cling to? And how do you remind yourself that there was a reason that you chose something difficult? A few things. And uh, like I, I recognize my privilege in this, that my parents came as uh, immigrants. My, my dad literally came as a political refugee from Hungary to mm -hmm. the U.S. in the 70s. Um, neither of them had gone to college. My dad didn't even go to high school. He learned how to repair typewriters, which is very useful today. Yeah, <laughs> right. Another industry that was booming <laughs> once. Um, and they 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 met in this country from two different countries and uh, sacrificed a lot to make a, a better um, opportunity for their children. And I am supremely appreciative of that. I recognize how easy I've had it, so I, I don't feel like I have grounds to complain or to be like, oh, this is too hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I should mm -hmm. <laughs> work less. It's all or, relative. Yeah, there's a huge relative. relative scale. Yeah. Um, that with, uh, I, I had some formative experiences, not, not quite like my parents, especially my dad, who was like literally homeless and literally dumpster diving to survive. Like, uh, I've had elements of that. I, 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 was homeless for a short period of time when uh, I was launching my first company, working three jobs, living in a, an apartment eventually that was like under construction, didn't have heat or hot water, which in Michigan winter is not necessarily safe. Mm. Um, like I, I remember like having to, ha having already graduated, not having access to a library after hours and like waiting for a new student to walk in so that I could like sneak into the library too and like, <laughs> have a place to work out um, out of like sitting on one wall of my apartment that was closest to the cafe behind it so that I could use their Wi-Fi and like these are all first world problems but it these were hard times that made me recognize that like it could be so much worse mm. so like 
when I have a shitty day, when something doesn't go right, it's like I've had it worse. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's really not that serious. Like I'm still alive. I still have my family. Um, I have friends. I, like I know that I'm loved. I know that I love. And those are all, I think, really critical things. And then I, this one last one, which is a, um, not exactly my cousin, but like a cousin. And uh, he, he's a, a founder of a very, very, very successful company. And I had this foundational conversation with him where I was like, hey, Adi, uh, I'm thinking of starting my own company. You know, you were very successful. Like, what do you think? And you know what the first thing he told me was? He goes, fucking guy he goes don't do it mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it's the only logical thing to say he goes don't do it but let me let me qualify what i'm saying okay. i don't literally mean do not do it what i mean is whatever you think you're getting yourself into you're you're wrong mm. it is not pleasant mm. you are most likely going to lose money you're going to work harder than you ever would at any job that would pay you tremendously more on the other side, you'll be able to choose what you work on. You'll be able to dictate the environment that you're in and the culture that you create. And you'll learn a lot in the process. And the, the cherry on top is if, if you do have some kind of exit, that, that's just that's a bonus. And I, I carry that with me. And I recognize that like it could all be taken away from me at any moment. And I, I'm, at, I'm at peace with that. Uh, like obviously, that's not the goal. But um, I'm. If, for example, I didn't have any of this anymore, I would still be supremely fortunate for all of the opportunities. I mean, the ability to speak with you today, the ability to think about what does the future of technology look like. Same. Those yeah. are privileges and luxuries that most people don't get to have. So yes. I, I lean on that to muse and just <laughs> shoot the breeze about what might be. Uh, I, I feel the same way. It's um, it is it is a privilege, and I think. If you think about what is leadership or what is ethics, I think, you know, I don't know how to fly a plane. I don't have, just like you, I need glasses. I have contacts in. Um, If you are a passenger in a plane, you appreciate and you have a general faith that a pilot who does know more than you and has a greater ability than you is going to do their best to get you there safely. And most of our society and economy is built on that principle. If I get on a bus, I'm pretty certain that the bus is going to go where it's supposed to go. (laughs) I'm here in Boston now, so if I get on the T, I'm fairly convinced that I'll arrive. I'm not so sure about that I don't know, maybe the New York subway. (laughs) I'm fairly certain that I'll arrive. Uh, But so I like to think about, the model that I think about is knowing that there are so many people in the world and in this country who are suffering tremendously, Mm -hmm. who are living on less than a dollar a day, there are so many people for whom all of this is an absurd dream, fantasy, luxury life. Um, I like to think, what should the people who have the luxury to be able to think about this stuff and talk about this stuff, what would we like to be doing? You know, if, if I didn't have this and I was looking on the outside... To this, what would you want people like us to be thinking about? How would you want them to be looking at their situation, about at their privilege? What kind of values and beliefs would you want them to have? And I think that it's so important for the people who do have the capacity in life, both materially and intellectually, to be on the right side of history with what they're focusing on and to have the right set of values. Because if they don't do it, like you yeah. said, no one else will. 
The pessimist in me says that they won't, practically yeah. that they won't, because it's hard. Right. But the thing that changes that, and I, I feel like this word gets used so often that it almost becomes like, like a saccharine, like it's almost too sweet, mm-hmm. which is empathy. Mm-hmm. That it, it that that really is what it is. Don't like tell the, that to Gary Vaynerchuk. <laughs> but it, <laughs> um, the the ability to. Without the experience, put yourself in the shoes of someone else is what differentiates the ability to recognize your privilege, recognize your position, and then um, work with what is what is not that. Work with how can I leverage this platform to someone else's benefit. Honestly, some people might not even care, but then I think that's very clearly not empathetic. Mm-hmm. But to be empathetic to Put yourself in the shoes of others. That that is really important. Mm-hmm. I had some formative experiences uh, before uh, I, I went to university. I, I took time off. Uh, I, I'm Israeli. Instead of doing the military, I didn't want to do that. I'm an American citizen, so I didn't have to. But I, I wanted to take some time off before school. So what I did was a year of social work, and uh, I did a lot of inter-Israeli Arab and Jew relations and doing it through combined activity. So literally like (laughs) not in other people's shoes, but like walking through other parts of town, walking and eating with people that you wouldn't necessarily have uh, brush shoulders with explaining points of view and approaching it from not thinking that you have the answers, but in search of a solution. And I, I like, I, 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 speak a lot often with high school students who ask like, what can we do to, you know, start a business or get into school or whatever is a traditional form of career escalation. I I, I say curate the ability to ask questions. Mm. Uh, and I think that truly is a superpower. So the, and, and you, I think you are doing a fantastic job of that, hey. by the way. But yeah, if everyone asks a little bit more questions, oh man, I got to shout out our VP of product, Jamie Alders. He uh, was the first person to put me on to Ted Lasso. Oh, man. Yeah. Just what a beacon of freaking hope. Right. In an otherwise depressing, sad world of content. Yes. Just like, I am so sad that it's over. But anyways. Yes. In Ted Lasso, there's this excellent, excellent, excellent scene where they're playing darts. Mm. And before he wipes the floor with the quote-unquote bad guy in the show. Sorry, spoilers. Mm. Um, so, it's, a, it's a couple seasons back, I think. This is this the quick. first season, yeah, like right. second episode, first <laughs> right. episode. He, he gets into this conversation of be curious, not judgmental, which I think is a Mark Twain quote. And he goes into like, if you ask questions, if you're empathetic, if you're trying to understand other people's dispositions, it will just take you that further. It will show you the difference. Not all the time, but enough to make a difference. I think that's what's important because nothing will be perfect. But we can do is improve. And that's the approach I think we have here at Neuropol as well. Mm, yeah. Very wise words. And you learn you, through interacting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a brilliant show. Wait, a side note. When uh, of course the writers' strike is happening all around me mm-hmm. right now, I know a lot of my friends are in Hollywood, being from that area, mm-hmm. and a lot of people are affected by that, and they are writers. Uh, I think you know ninety percent of the content on Netflix 
could be replaced by AI. Uh, but Ted Lasso would be one that I don't think could, at least not anytime soon. There's a lot of content that's so formulaic and generic that yeah. I think AI'd probably do just fine. But <laughs> Ted Lasso, that one, that's a good one. I, I like, if you haven't watched it, just do yourself a favor. Yeah, it's just positive. <laughs> yeah. It's just uh, how I describe it. And I think it's relevant. Yeah. So sorry for waxing on Ted Lasso, but I think it's actually very, very relevant to deep tech conversations, issues of today. And the reason why Ted Lasso is so special is because it depicts a world where not everyone is perfect, not even necessarily everyone is good, but everyone is decent, mm. except for maybe one character. Mm-hmm. Right. But it shows you what's possible in a world where everyone's just, on average, more good than they are bad. Right. And it is. I think that's called Canada. I, I've, been, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard. <laughs> Maybe Sweden. <laughs> yeah, like. No, you're right. It's yeah. The different cultures interacting. It's it's a way of being. It's a way of treating people. And the Ted Lasso effect. <laughs> also, no spoilers given. Uh, yeah, it's a way of. <laughs> the lasso way. The, yeah, the lasso way <laughs> <It> was never. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's a way of being. It's a way of thinking about things. And I think it's unrealistic that everybody will be that in this world. We've all had to come to terms with the fact that there are many people who are driven by many different motivations in life. And that can be very frustrating and that can be very upsetting. Yeah. Uh, but having those types of role models and having those types of people out there, again, just to witness. You're like, oh, that's what it could look like. That's what a leader could be. Ted Lasso could be that way. That's how you can unite a diverse group of people with very different interests over exactly. time. That's how you can bond. That's how you can very profound implications for building a company, for yep. example. How do you get the most out of all these people here? Um, so, yeah, I think the more that we can be positive role models, and, and that was why, as I told you before we started taping, the, my point of doing this was to focus on the people who are doing good things because I think by default, critical, smart people – we tend to latch on to the stuff that is wrong with the world, the stuff that is broken, the people. <laughs> we see the na- same names in the news over and over and over again, and we say, why can't I fix them? Why can't I fix them? And I think my objective is to shine a spotlight on all of the people and say, look, that's not everybody. What dominates your news feed, that's not everybody. There are incredible people who are very smart, and they've got their hearts in the right place. Yeah. And they're Absolutely. seeking to build what they believe is the best version of that world, and they're making difficult choices for some greater good, and that will always be the most fascinating thing to me personally. Yeah, I want to shout out another privilege is uh, that I, I've been fortunate to have is uh, I was born and raised in Queens, New York, which is the most diverse place in the United States. Oh. So that's cool. I didn't know that, but it's yeah, not, not no, surprising. It's okay. awesome. Um, and when you have diverse experiences, you're able to have these kind of understandings. You're able to think through things differently. You're able to recognize that, oh, maybe not all things are ba- are bad, but it is, like, bad things happen, but that's not the totality of it. Mm-hmm. So experience, empathy, uh, just being a, a decent human being, like, those are the the core principles that I, I grapple with. Yep, I, I agree. And I also try to remind myself, and something that I genuinely do believe, is that when we uh, think of diversity and empathy, it often, you know, depending on your point of view, it extends in one direction. You say, like, oh, I need to be empathetic towards this group. But, of course, the reality is that 
there's empathy for people that you disagree with. And most people um, are fundamentally good people as individuals from whatever their political beliefs may be. Most people at their core want the same things, I think. They want validation. They want love. They want a sense of contribution. They just may have very different ideas about what that means. To connect it back to the brain, your brain likes to be right. And it is more difficult for your brain to process ways to anticipate how you might be wrong than to reinforce worldviews to dictate how you are right, which directly affects this. That it's more difficult for me to think about, oh, what part of what you're saying might be true? Why are you thinking this way? Where are you coming from? Those questions require more processing power. And I think the more that we can teach these skills, um, a whole other couple hours we could have a conversation on our education system yeah. and the various pedagogies that we have around that have initially put that together from the Industrial Revolution and have still maintained today. Um, yeah, all, all, all of these things matter. See, I don't have to worry about that. My brain data will show I don't have to worry about that because I, the internet lets me know that I'm always wrong. So whatever I think about anything, it's, it's, it's wrong. <laughs> that's, yeah, but that's, whether you're always wrong, like, you still want to be right. <laughs> yeah, but that desire is just never going to get fulfilled. Um, well, I, you've been more than generous with your time. It's been a, a pleasure to chat. I love talking about these kinds of things. I appreciate I know you it, do too, um, And I appreciate your point of view. And the most significant thing is, yeah, I, I love what you guys are doing. Um, I think it's really profound and I'm really excited to see what's going to happen. It's going to be an exciting year for From us. the minimum to the maximum both extremes are exciting um, and I can't wait as somebody who listens to music all the time I can't wait to have this integrated and to let's just hope every pair of headphones that ever is made by anybody ever <laughs> <laughs> right? conservatively speaking. And, and can I just shout out to whomever's listening uh be critical. Like, don't just take my word for it. Think about how this can be improved. Let us know, because at the end of the day, this this is not just true for what we're doing. It's true for what everyone's doing. There should be buy-in. There should be diverse perspectives. So, I think the the better that we can do that, and the better that we can spread that message, the better everything will improve on average. Sounds good. What a great way to wrap it up. Uh, this concludes the episode. We're here at Neurable Offices. This team, all these brain things around us, these fabulous things as well. So thank you for taking the time. And with that, the official podcast is over. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.